I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, welcome to episode 9 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. Today's titled, French Counterinsurgency Losing Afrique. This is the second part of a formerly one-part series on French counterinsurgency, but I discovered that there was simply too much material to cover in one podcast. So, we'll be discussing Algeria today. But before we discuss Algeria, what I'd like to do is give you a little thumbnail sketch of French colonial holdings and how French colonization happened in the uh, historical period starting in the 17th century when they had North America, India, and parts of the Caribbean. Of course, in the Seven Years' War, also known as the Cousins' War, from 1757 to 1764, they lost almost all of these, to the English, mostly. The French colonial empire restarted in 1830 with the invasion of Algeria in the Northern African complex. Now, let's uh, fast forward to today, present French colonies. In the Caribbean, we have Guadeloupe, Martinique, St. Martin, St. Bartholomew, St. Pierre, and Michelon. Those are the Atlantic colonies. In the Pacific, there's French Polynesia, New Caledonia, Wallace, and Futuna. In the Indian Ocean, there's Reunion, Mayotte, French Southern and Antarctic lands. That, much like the British after 1948, is the totality of what they would probably not refer to as colonial holdings in today's day and age, but those are presently French territories that have survived the French colonial losses in the 20th century. Among those losses in the 20th century, we're going to concentrate on Algeria in this case, but those weren't the only colonies that were lost in Africa. The, uh, the French lost Mauritania, Senegal, Mali, Guinea, the Ivory Coast, Burkina Faso, Benin, Niger. And, of course, they... Uh, participated in the war in Chad against the Libyan invasion in 1987, and most of Africa, as partially Indochina, would be where the Légion Étrangère, which is the French Foreign Legion, would really make their bones martially, philosophically, and historically. The French invaded Algeria in 1830 and formally annexed it as part of France, on the 22nd of June, 1834. French Tunisia was established in 1881, and it achieved its independence in 1956. French Morocco was made a French colony in 1912. It established its independence in 1956, and it took until 1961-1962 for France to render Algeria independent of the uh, colonists of metropolitan France. So before we get into the historical bones and commentary of what makes French coin such a failure in Algeria as French coin was such a failure in the uh, 1950s in Indochina, as we talked about in my previous podcast, 
I listened to the review of a book in an interview with the author. His name is Donald Hassett. And the name of the book is Mobilizing Memory, The Great War in the Language of Politics in Colonial Algeria, 1918 to 1939. Now, while I find most modern scholarship, especially when it is absolutely obsessed with the PC and wokest renderings of class, race, and gender, nonetheless, he brings up what I think is a really startling contrast Donald Hassett happens to be an Irishman who teaches at an Irish university. He's conversant in French and conversant in Gaelic and conversant in English, of course. And he makes the point that there's a lot to be rendered historically in the parallels between the Irish Rebellion, which culminated from 1916 to 1922 in the, one can't say peaceful, but warlike resolution of the Irish question in British politics, and they gain their independence, a free state, then independence. And he points out that a lot of the same things that informed that Irish independence also informed the Algerian independence, which was rendered from 1956 until 1962, and finally culminating in not only the fall of many politicians in the Fourth Republic in France at the time, as a result of the military staging a veritable mutiny between 58 and 62 against metropolitan France. By the way, I will be using that term metropolitan France. The way France looks at that term, they look at that as the whole of continental France in Europe proper, and their colonies, for instance, in Algeria, were the Pétendois, which is the French colonist, went there since 1830, and had probably been there before 1830, but became officially members of the French Republic outside of metropolitan France in 1830. And then, of course, with the successive declaration of it being a formal part of France in 1834. You will find in this podcast series that I'm positing a number of similarities, contrasts, and those kind of things. And one of the motifs that I suspect is going to run, it runs from episode one, and it runs all the way probably through the time when I stop podcasting on this very subject in a regular warfare, what I refer to as the decanting or uncorking of sub-conflicts within larger conflicts. For instance, I've made the point in several podcast episodes that World War II uncorked not only a lot of the civil conflicts and internecine conflicts that were going on within countries or complexes of countries themselves, but it was World War II that finally ushered in a very rapid decolonization of the planet from 1945 until, let's uh, bookend it here, 1962, with the final liberation of Algeria to become its own independent nation state outside of French control. From whence, I'm going to posit a conclusion. Every time a counterinsurgent behaves in a fashion to quell an insurgency within a country, they're decanting, uncorking, and releasing other civil conflicts, uh, rumors of conflict, problem sets within... A, a given country or a regional complex so that these things start to emerge as new conflicts that come to the surface and new conflicts that can even take on a military measure where they turn into genuine insurgencies.
Here's what you will note. It is no mean coincidence that the FLN, which was the Indigenous National Liberation Front, for the most part being the primary opponent and protagonist for the Algerian Indigs versus the French colonizers. Now, what you find is that in the early morning hours of 1 November 1954, FLN, they called them Muscassards, which is guerrillas, they attacked military and civilian targets throughout Algeria. And this became known as the Toussaint Rouge, which is the Red All Saints Day. You know, all over the country, they had almost what appeared to be, but was not, a spontaneous uprising in Algeria proper. Now, keep in mind that this is the same year that the French at Dien Bien Phu were defeated by the NVA in North Vietnam in French Indochina, in that this provided an inspiration for, again, I would say, a decanting, an uncorking of these martial conflicts that would emerge in guerrilla style in Algeria. Now, this FLN uprising, it, it presented nationalist groups with the question of whether to adopt armed revolt as the main course of action or a more peaceful revolt, as Gandhi had used for the most part, since the 1920s in India. Now, during the first year of the war, Farad Abbas Democratic Union of the Algerian Manifesto, UDMA, the, Ulum, the Ulima, and the Algerian Communist Party maintained a friendly neutrality towards the FLN. The communists, who had made no move to cooperate in the uprising at the start, later tried to infiltrate the FLN, but the FLN publicly, publicly repudiated the support of that party. Now, mind you, as this FLN campaign of influence spread throughout the countryside, many of the European farmers, I had mentioned that they referred to themselves as Piednois, many of whom lived on these lands, had been taken by force in the 19th century from the Muslims. They sold their holdings and sought refuge in metropolitan Algiers and other Algerian cities and escaped the rural areas for the urban areas where they thought they would be safe. Bombing started to commence, massacres started to commence on both sides, and this is where the Perenois and the French Algerian government went to metropolitan France and Paris and demanded that they do something about this. Now, during this time in 1955, they did not seek an active military solution, but the future would portend worse than that. Because in August and September of 1956, the leadership of the FLN guerrillas operating within Algeria, met to organize a formal policy-making body to synchronize the movement's political and military activities. Highest authority of the FLN was vested in the 34-member National Council of the Algerian Revolution, within which the five-man committee of coordination and enforcement formed the executive. And in October 1956, in what one can see as a coup of sorts, the French Air Force intercepted a Moroccan DC-3 bound for Tunis, carrying Ahmed Ben Bella, Mohamed Boudaif, Mohamed Khidir, and Hach Al-Ahmed, and forced it to land in Algiers. Lacoste, who was the governor at the time, had the FLNN external political leaders arrested and imprisoned for the duration of the war. This would not stop the FLN from continuing the conflict. Fast forward to the spring of 1957, and we have the Battle of Algiers, which starts to begin. And by the way, a film was made in the early 60s called The Battle of Algiers, 
in black and white. Brilliant film, a little way historical, but that's how you power the, the narratives through in filmmaking. I would highly recommend that film if you want to get a taste of how awful this conflict was. The Battle of Algiers actually began on September 30th, 1956, when three women, including Dajamilia Buhared and Zora Drif, simultaneously placed bombs at three sites, including the downtown office of Air France. Now, what we would see here is a very interesting use of women that isn't so ahistorical, because, of course, we saw the same thing occurring in French Indochina during that conflict from 1945 to 1954, when the French finally left Indochina. The, uh, the FLN carried out these shootings and bombings in the spring of 1957 also. Many civilian casualties. Genuine terroristic bombing. And here we have the appearance of General Jacques Massou, who was instructed to use whatever methods deemed necessary to restore order in the city and find and eliminate terrorists. Using paratroopers, he broke the strike and in the succeeding months destroyed the FLN infrastructure in Algiers. But the FLN had succeeded in showing its ability to strike at the heart of French Algeria and to assemble a mass response to the demands among urban Muslims, not simply rural Muslims. The publicity given to the brutal methods used by the army under Massou to win the Battle of Algiers, including the use of torture, strong movement control, and curfew called quadrilège, and where all authority was under the military, created doubt in France about its role in Algeria. I want to make a note. There are a number of things that happened between 1954 and 1962 that are sort of outside the venue of this podcast, and I may treat it in a future episode where I will talk about the right, far right, and reactionary elements within the Père Noir, the French military at the time and such, which would culminate in a coup against Paris in 61 and 62 by French paratroopers. But uh, it's sort of outside the venue of this podcast. I'm not going to cover that now. I will cover that in the future sometime, but just a warning. What was originally pacification would, of course, turn into a colonial war, and it would be accompanied by torture. And this would become infamous. As a matter of fact, it took France until 2018 to finally formally apologize for the use of torture in the 1950s and early 60s in Algeria. Now, between 56 and 57, the FLN successfully applied hit-and-run tactics, ambush tactics, raid tactics in accordance with the guerrilla warfare theory that I hope that many of my perennial listeners are already acquainted with. Now, while some of this was aimed at military targets, a significant amount was invested in terror campaign against French nationals and Muslims who happened to collaborate with the French in Algeria proper. This resulted, of course, in acts of sadistic torture and brutal violence against all, including women and children, by both French, FLN, and Muslims. The FLN, they specialized in ambushes and night raids and avoiding direct contact with superior French firepower. The internal forces targeted army patrols, military encampments, police posts, and colonial farms. Once an engagement was broken off, the guerrillas merged with the population of the countryside, in accordance with Mao's theories that they were espousing and acquainted with. Kidnapping was also commonplace. 
During the preparation for this podcast, I became acquainted with the work of an, an historian, French historian, by the name of Benjamin Stora, S-T-O-R-A, who I found a, a great deal of great information from. So what did the French coin, these counterinsurgency operations, look like? So despite complaints from the military command in Algiers, the French government was reluctant for many months to admit that the Algerian situation was out of control. But as I mentioned, by 1956, there were more than 400,000 French troops in Algeria. Although the elite colonial infantry airborne units and the French Foreign Legion bore the brunt of the offensive counterinsurgency combat operations, approximately 170,000 Muslim Algerians also served in the regular French army. For those who think that 170,000 number is, is rather odd, you will find that, for instance, when you look at the First World War and the colonial and colonial policing efforts that were employed not only in Africa and Indochina, but also in certain respects on the Western Front, there were literally hundreds of thousands of Senegalese troops under French command who were used in these. So the use of colonial levies of indigenous forces is not strange at all. You'll find that the Belgians, the French, the Italians, the British, even the Americans would use those. Another thing I found rather interesting in the multi-tier effort is that they complemented what they did with the military with something called the SAS, and that's not the British Special Air Service, but the Section Administrative Specialists. And this was created in 1955. Their mission was to establish contact with the Muslim population and weaken nationalist influence in the rural area by asserting the French presence there. These SAS officers, called Kepe Blu, also recruited and trained bands of loyal Muslim irregulars known as Harkis. Armed with shotguns and using guerrilla tactics similar to those of the FLN, the Harkis, who eventually numbered around 180,000 volunteers, were an ideal instrument in the counterinsurgency warfare according to Benjamin Sorha. Harkis were mostly used in conventional formations, which is strange to me, either in all Algerian units commanded by French officers or mixed units. But then again, they did have the French Foreign Legion, which had taken to first and second world soldiery to populate it. So when you sort of complemented the colonial military apparatus with this, it seems to make sense. To quote Lawrence E. Klein, a U.S. military expert, quote, the extent of these pseudo-operations appeared to have been very limited both in time and scope. The most widespread use of pseudo-type operations was during the Battle of Algiers in 1957. The principal French employer of covert agents in Algiers was the 5th Bureau, the Psychological Warfare. That 5th Bureau made extensive use of turned FLN members. And uh, one organized pseudo-guerrilla unit, however, was created in December of 56 by the French DST, their domestic intelligence agency. The organization of the French Algerian resistance, ORAF, a group of counter-terrorists, had as its mission to carry out false flag terrorist attacks with the aim of quashing any hopes of political compromise. But it seemed that, as in Indochina, the French focused on developing native guerrilla groups that would fight against the FLN, one of which fought in the Southern Atlas Mountains, equipped by the French army. This would bite them in the ass later on when the Araf would be an inspiration for right-wing paramilitaries and organizations to reject the reticence and resistance 
to a more robust military response to the FLN and take it upon themselves as native Algerian colonists to do that very thing. Now we fast forward to 1957 when General Raoul Salan, commanding the French army in Algeria, instituted a system of quadrillage, surveillance using a grid pattern. Now you'll see this illustrated in the film that I mentioned earlier from the early 60s called The Battle of Algiers, which I highly commend to you to watch. And it divided the country into sectors, each permanently garrisoned by troops responsible for suppressing rebel operations in their assigned territory. Salon's methods did reduce the instances of FLN terrorism, but it tied down a very large infrastructure of troops to do that, and they were doing it in a static defense. Salon also constructed a heavily patrolled system of barriers to limit infiltration from Tunisia and Morocco, each respectively French territories that just happened to be liberated in 1956, the year before. The best known of these was a Maurice line, named for the French defense minister, André Maurice, which consisted of an electrified fence, barbed wire, and mines over a 320-kilometer stretch of the Tunisian border. Again, I, own, I owe much of this knowledge to my reading uh, Benjamin Sorta. Electrified barriers along the entire length of Algeria's eastern and western borders was contemplated, but never instantiated. I'd like to quote here from the memoirs of one Pierre Leyoué. It's called St. Michael and the Dragon, Memoirs of a Paratrooper. Quote, the French military command ruthlessly applied the principles of collective responsibility to villages suspected of sheltering, supplying, or in any way cooperating with the guerrillas. Villages that could not be reached by mobile units were subject to aerial bombardment. FLN guerrillas that fled to caves or other remote hiding places were tracked and hunted down. In one episode, the FLN guerrillas who refused to surrender and withdraw from a cave complex were dealt with by French Foreign Legion pioneer troops who, lacking flamethrowers or explosives, simply bricked up each cave, leaving the residents to die of suffocation and of cave complexes, aerial bombardment, civilian casualties, deja vu. America would experience these very same things at the turn of the 21st century. Now, the French army started to shift its tactics at the, at the end of 1958 from dependence on quadrillage to the use of mobile forces deployed on massive search-and-destroy missions against FLN strongholds to include in urban areas. In 1959, Salon's successor, General Maurice Chalet, appeared to have suppressed major rebel resistance, but political developments had already overtaken the French army's successes. Now, let's take a moment to reflect. If I am leaving you with the impression that the French military seems to have succeeded on the martial front to suppress the FLN, uh, put them back on their heels, and pretty much win this colonial fight, that could very well be the case, but they don't win the entire fight. What's curious about the Algerian conflict is that all of a sudden, things start to go dark for the FLN between 1958 and 1962, when Algeria is finally awarded its independence from metropolitan France and becomes its own nation-state. But what you find is that while the French military may have countered successfully to a certain extent, what we have is rippling effects and unintended consequences of a kind of uncorked political intensity on the part of the Perenois and the non-metropolitan French colonials and even members of the paratroopers and the French Foreign Legion who were so dissatisfied 
with having been held on a leash of sorts and not being able to unleash all of their military power against the FLN and its associated terrorist organizations, that this starts to reverberate in France with the fall of the Fourth Republic. Again, quoting Benjamin Stora, who's a terrific author when it comes to treating the political aspects of this. An army junta under General Massou, who I mentioned earlier, seized power in Algiers on the night of May 13, 1958, thereafter known as the May 1958 crisis. General Salon assumed leadership of a committee of public safety formed to replace the civil authority and pressed the junta's demands that de Gaulle be named by French President Renaud Coty to head a government of national unity invested with extraordinary powers to prevent the abandonment of Algeria. Again, Benjamin Sorta. On May 24th, this is 1958, French paratroopers from the Algerian Corps landed on Corsica, taking the French island in a bloodless action, Operation Corset. Subsequently, preparations were made in Algeria for Operation Resurrection, which had as its objective the seizure of Paris and the removal of the French government. Resurrection was to be implemented in the event of one of three following scenarios. Were de Gaulle not approved as leader of France by the parliament? Were de Gaulle to ask for military assistance to take power? Or if it seemed that communist forces were making any move to take power in France? De Gaulle was approved by the French parliament on May 29th by 329 votes against 224, 15 hours before the projected launch of Operation Resurrection. This indicated that the Fourth Republic in 1958 no longer had any support from the French army in Algeria and was at its mercy even in civilian political matters. This decisive shift in the balance of power in civil-military relations in France in 1958 and the threat of force were the primary factor to the return of de Gaulle to France, to power in France. End of quote. Now what you find interesting is a mere three years later, as a result of the dissatisfaction of military portions of the military forces of France, even with the installation of de Gaulle, de Gaulle himself, after his success, his success in assuming the mantle of leadership against him, again in France with the Fifth Republic, after the fall of the Fourth Republic, would have to rebuff the moves of the military in 1961. Now, in February 59, de Gaulle is actually elected president of the new Fifth Republic. He visited Algeria to announce a program in October to end the war and create an Algeria closely linked to France. De Gaulle's call on the rebel leaders to end hostilities and to participate in elections was met with adamant refusal. The problem of a ceasefire in Algeria is not simply a military problem, said Abbas, it is essentially political. A negotiation must cover the whole quest question of Algeria. So from 58 to 59, the French army won military control in Algeria and was the closest it would be to victory. In late July 59, during Operation Jumelles, Colonel Bigir, whose elite paratrooper unit fought at Dien Ben Phu in 1954, told journalist Jean Lartigay, yes, that Lartigay, quote, we are not making war for ourselves, not making a colonialist war. Bigir wears no shirt. He shows his open uniform, as do my officers. We are fighting right here, right now for them, for the evolution. To see the evolution of these people in this war is for them. We are defending their freedoms as we are, in my opinion, defending the West freedom. We are here ambassadors, crusaders, 
who are hanging on to, in order to still be able to talk and be able to speak for July 1959, end of quote. As I mentioned earlier, de Gaulle would put this on its head because in 16 September 1959, de Gaulle would dramatically reverse his stand and uttered the words, quote, self-determination, end of quote, which set things awry. The French loyalists who wanted it to remain part of France and not be a self-determined nation-state of all its own started a week of barricades that started on the 24th of January 1960. And it's known in France as La Semaine des Barricades, the week of the barricades. The ultras incorrectly believe that they would be supported by General Massou. The insurrection order was given by Colonel Jean Gard of the 5th Bureau. As the army police and supporters stood by, civilian Pédenois threw up barricades in the streets and seized government buildings. General Maurice Chalet, responsible for the army in Algeria, declared Algiers under siege but forbade the troops to fire on these French insurgents. Nevertheless, 20 rioters were killed. So de Gaulle called on his ineffective army to remain loyal on 29 January 1960. Quote, I took in the name of France the following decisions. The Algerians will have the free choice of their destiny. When in one way or another by ceasefire or by complete crushing of the rebels, we will have put an end to the fighting when after a prolonged period of appeasement, the population will have become conscious of the stakes and thanks to us, realize the necessary progress in political, economic, social, educational, other domains. Then it will be the Algerians who tell us what they want to be. You're French of Algeria? How can you listen to the liars and the conspirators who tell you that if you grant free choice to the Algerians, France and de Gaulle want to abandon you, retreat from Algeria, and deliver you to the rebellion? I say to all of our soldiers, your mission comprises neither equivocation nor interpretation. You have to liquidate the rebel rebellious forces which want to oust France from Algeria and impose on this country its dictatorship of misery and sterility. Finally, I address myself to France. Well, well, my dear and old country, here we face together once again a serious ordeal. In virtue of the mandate that the people have given me and of the national legitimacy which I have embodied for 20 years, I ask everyone to support me, whatever happens. End of quote. Most of the army heeded his call, but there were elements that did not, including the Secret Army Organization, or the OAS, which is created on 3 December 1960. And its primary purpose is continuing the fight for French Algeria in spite of the fact that all of the political community, for the most part, in in, um, metropolitan France and de Gaulle's administration in the Fifth Republic want to simply wash their hands of Algeria and grant it independence, which would happen a a mere two years later. But with the formation of the OAS... Non-indigenous, French-backed terrorism and paramilitary activities against Algerian indigs and the FLN would continue until their independence in 1962. To quote Sorta again, They were highly organized and well-armed. The OAS stepped up its terrorist activities, which were directed against both Algerians and pro-government French citizens, as the move toward negotiated settlement of the war and self-determination gained momentum. To the FLN rebellion against France were added civil wars between extremists in the two communities and between the ultras and the French national government in Algeria. Again, uncorking and decanting 
subliminal conflicts that were going on, bringing them above ground, and then they pushed the accelerator. If all of this isn't disturbing enough, I mentioned the use of torture and other baleful instruments and instrumentalities in the previous podcast, and I've mentioned it before. Massacres and tortures were frequent from the beginning of the colonization of Algeria in 1830. These atrocities that were committed against Algerians by the French army during the war included indiscriminate shootings into civilian crowds, not to say that that terrorism wasn't practiced by the FLN themselves, imprisonment without food in small cells, which were small enough to impede lying down, throwing detainees from helicopters and into the sea with concrete on their feet, and burying people alive. The torture methods would include beatings, mutilations, burning, hanging by the feet or hands, torture by electroshock, waterboarding, sleep deprivation, and sexual assaults. Again, Benjamin Sorta. Quote, during the war, the French military relocated entire villages to centers de regroupement, regrouping centers, which were built by for, for forcibly displaced civilian populations. Again, we have the barbed wire empire here rearing its ugly head since the British gave us concentration camps at the end of the 19th century in the Boer Wars. Over 8,000 villages were destroyed, and over 2 million Algerians were resettled in regrouping internment camps with some being forced into labor. In a book by Raphael Brachet that's entitled The French Army in Torture During the Algerian War 1954-1962, quote, Claude Bourdet denounced acts of torture in Algeria on 6 December 1951 in the magazine Les Observateurs, rhetorically asking, is there a Gestapo in Algeria? D. Huff, in his seminal work on the subject, argued that the use of torture was one of the major factors in developing French opposition to the war. Huff argued, quote, such tactics sat uncomfortably with France's revolutionary history and brought unbearable comparisons with Nazi Germany. The French national psyche would not tolerate any parallels between their experiences of occupation and their colonial mastery of Algeria. General Paul Alcaraces admitted in 2000 that systematic torture techniques were used during the war and justified it. He also recognized the assassination of lawyer... Ali Boumont and the head of the FLN in Algiers, Larbi Ben Mihidi, which had been disguised as suicides. Michel Bigir, who called FLN activists savages, claimed torture was a necessary evil. To the contrary, General Jacques Massou denounced it, following Aoussa Reyes's revelations and before his death, pronounced himself in favor of an official condemnation of the use of torture during the war, which France would officially do in 2018. So in my rather sizable regular warfare library that I have at home, I have Modern Guerrilla Warfare by Franklin Mark and Osanka, published in 1961. In here is an essay by one Peter Braestrup called Partisan Tactics Algerian Style. And I wanted to quote from uh, one of the notions in here, and it's, quote, Nevertheless, with the bulk of the 500,000-man army tied up in garrisons, the hard-worked mobile forces were insufficient to gain military decision over the elusive rebels. Only the Maurice Line and the periodic cleanups limited in time and area gave rebel forces outside the cities a hard check. Not even the French claimed to have destroyed any major rebel units. For the lack of an overall policy, the army's hard measures, like forcible Muslim regroupment and haphazard repression, ran across purposes with the work of its benevolent SAS, which I had mentioned earlier. 
Enough bitter Muslims remained, even in the Maurice line approaches, to supply recruits information and shelter to the rebels. The French garrisons, from my observation, seem relatively timid, despite the obvious rewards of aggressive patrolling and prompt reaction to rebel thrust. Neither psychologically nor physically did the French army as a whole seem prepared to cope with the rigors and subtleties of partisan warfare. End of quote. Now, let's keep in mind that this is the same French army that, under a five-year occupation, as I mentioned in the previous podcast episode, had the Maquis, the French Resistance, and other resistance organizations fighting against both Vichy France and the German occupation itself for almost six years, from 1940 to 1945. What did they learn? Apparently, their memory started to dissolve immediately after the war ended because they did not know how guerrillas operated, and they did not know that once you start using these hard-line and very violent um, tactics, techniques, and procedures to dissolve a guerrilla resistance, all you are doing is strengthening it. It's as I mentioned before. The more women and children that you maim or kill or regroup or put in concentration camps, the harder the steel in the spine of any resistance or complex of resistance organizations in a nation state in which coin is being employed. And before I start to detail some of my own conclusions about this, I'd like to Quote Douglas Porch, one of my favorite authors, in his book on counterinsurgency. Quote, the final irony was that in their eagerness to combat la guerre subversive, France's small warriors transformed themselves into subversives, who lost sight of the fact that, as de Gaulle had to remind them, the army fights for the state, not for its own sake. Les armes pour les armes. De Gaulle discovered that he could take the army out of small wars, but to take the small wars out of the army, he first had to decoinify it by dismantling the subversive anti-guerrilla structures in 1958. This was followed in 59 with a security assistance pact signed with Argentina to exile some of the more fanatical counterterrorism proponents to South America's southern cone, which ultimately dis- with ultimately disastrous results for that region. The long-overdue abolition of the 5E Bureau occurred in 1960, an important step in extracting the army from politics, although 5E Bureau alumni played an important part in the April 1961 General's Revolt and subsequently in OAS assassination plots. The most politicized officers were recalled to Europe, while military prefects, subprefects, and chiefs of police were replaced by civilians from 1960 in an attempt to end a situation in which suspects were interned indefinitely without being charged with a crime, civilian jurists replaced soldiers on internment commissions. And after the army provided reluctant, proved reluctant to turn suspects over to civilian courts, reserve lawyers and judges were called up to run military tribunals. End of quote. What we discover here is that the very coinifying, to torture a phrase, of the French army and its colonial involvement and entanglement caused it not only to sow the seeds of its own destruction in both Indochina and Algeria, but even led to civil unrest in metropolitan France itself and the destruction of part of its political structure with the Fourth Republic being replaced by the Fifth Republic and even such a military stalwart as de Gaulle blanching at the military excesses and the use of torture in in other implementations in Algeria at the time. There's nothing new here. 
There's nothing really historically extraordinary to discover. All this does is to verify in my mind that the drumbeat for coin will always end in disaster for the most part. A snapshot of some of my conclusions on French Algeria and its collapse and its total venture into self-determination by 1962, falling out of the French orbit entirely. There was a total lack of cultural IQ, despite the fact that the French had been there for almost a century and a quarter since 1830. The Pere Noir did not insinuate themselves into the culture. They insinuated their culture into the indigenous culture itself, which led to manifest friction throughout the entire decades of the French occupation and colonial adventure. These create violent cycles. When you, as I had mentioned earlier, maim and kill women and children, whether that is intentional or by mistake and collateral damage, you stiffen the spine of resistance and cause Newton's third law to come into play. I also want to talk about something very briefly because I'm going to cover an episode in the future in which Kenneth Pollock wrote a book called Armies of Sand where he showed just how how imbecilic and, and one could say incapable Islamic countries in the Middle East especially are of conventional military warfare. And I will cover that in depth when, when I do a review of Pollock's book, Army of, Armies of Sand. But what we can't take away from Islamists, mostly Shia and Sunni, is that their ability to conduct insurgency may have no peer on planet Earth. And there is an uncanny Islamic ability to conduct effective insurgency. Violent insurgency, mind you, but effective insurgency in other ways also. I had mentioned earlier the the instantiation that Donald Hassett had talked about where there's a comparison between Algerian and Ireland as far as how they wrested the control of their colonial oppressors using not only military means but a variety of cultural political means. And uh, I, I have to say... Violence is the coin, to torture uh, uh, a phrase, violence is the coin, but all it does is enriches insurgency. Throughout the journey that we have taken with these first nine episodes and the journey we will continue to take with the dozens of episodes I have planned for the future, what you discover is very rarely will a counterinsurgency be successful and very generously will insurgency be successful. And in conclusion, I'd like to say thanks for sharing my time once more with this podcast, the Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast with me. If you wish to get in touch with me with comments or constructive criticism, you can email me at cgpodcast at pm.me that's cgpodcast at pm.me so I look forward to our next episode which will be released in a fortnight and until then I wish you the best this is Bill out